The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. So they looked at atorvastatin, rosuvastatin, simvastatin, and pravastatin. And as you say, they treated them as different drugs. So obviously the first thing that this whole paper does is it just comes up with numbers that are a lot more nuanced than any previous guideline has been able to do. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Today's episode comes from the January 1st, 2019 issue of the Annals of Internal Medicine. The article is titled, Finding the Balance Between Benefits and Harms When Using Statins for Primary Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease, a Modeling Study. Joining us to discuss this article is Dr. Jeremy Sussman. Jeremy is a primary care physician at the Ann Arbor VA and assistant professor at the University of Michigan. His research focuses on understanding primary prevention for cardiovascular disease and diabetes. He has a great interest in computerization and how to use clinical values to make these decisions. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome to Annals on Call, Jeremy. Very excited to discuss this article on benefits and harms of stands for primary prevention. As I read the article, they do a nice job of framing the controversy that they're trying to address. Could you help us with what the controversy is and then compare that to what the current ACC and American Heart Association guidelines are? Sure, and thanks for having me, Bob. So the controversy, of course, is who should take them? Statins are among the most commonly used drugs in the country or the world, and figuring out exactly who the right people are and who will benefit the most is, of course, then a very important question. There are kind of two divergent groups right now. One group has generally focused on risk factors, which is the way we primarily treated statins in the past. If your LDL is high, get a drug that lowers your LDL. However, slowly over the last 20 or 30 years, and then more rapidly over the last five, there's been a movement towards treating instead based on risk, treating statins as a drug that lowers your chance of having a heart attack or stroke. And if they're a drug that lowers your chance of having a heart attack or stroke, give them to people who are more likely to have or develop a heart attack or stroke. And that fight has been pretty active since 2013 when some new cholesterol guidelines came out. There's also a second question, though, of how many people should we treat? How small a benefit is too small to make it worthwhile? And these two conflicts, do we go by risk factor versus risk, or treat everyone and minimize heart attacks, or minimize who we treat a little bit based on things like side effects, are both pretty active discussions right now. Let's define the study even better. So we're talking about primary prevention. And I think I know what primary prevention is, but why don't you help us and make sure we understand who we're talking about and who we're not talking about? Yeah, so this study really tried to focus on people who didn't have any dramatic reasons to take or not take a statin. So primary prevention means no history of cardiovascular disease events. 
It's also worth noting the study limited their population to ages 40 to 75 years old, as do most of the guidelines, which of course does leave out a whole lot of people who potentially are receiving statins or may or may not benefit from them. Whether or not history of diabetes is considered primary versus secondary prevention is also fairly fraught. This study did include them, people with diabetes, as being primary prevention. And so people with diabetes, especially type 2 diabetes, will have a higher probability of having coronary artery disease. So they take that into consideration in their primary prevention, that that's one of the risk factors that would lean towards giving statins, but make that absolute. Exactly. Okay, so they did a benefit-harm analysis. I knew a lot about analysis, but I had not previously read a benefit-harm analysis. Maybe you could help us with that and understand what they're trying to model here. So what the team is trying to do is trying to figure out a more rigorous way of cutting through this path of risk versus risk factor and how many people should be treated by really more quantitatively saying who are the people who benefit how much, who are the people who are harmed, and how much. And they did this, you know, the benefit risk is other people would call this a decision analysis. Some people do call it simulation modeling, although, again, it's a fairly data-driven simulation. What they did fundamentally had three steps, and it was a pretty complicated paper. So the first step was, in a separate paper, they did something called preference elicitation which is a fancy word for saying they tried to understand how bad is it to get these possible outcomes that people who do and don't take statins can get. How much is a stroke worse than developing cataracts? How much does myalgias harm your life? They did that separately to get a sense of, again, how bad are these things? A second thing they did in a paper that has not yet been published is a meta-analysis that said, how likely are you to get each of these things? So what first paper, how bad are these things? Second paper, how likely are you to get these things when you are on or not on statins? And then this paper pulled all that together and said, if we know how bad something is and we know how likely it is at the most personalized level we can achieve here, when is it worth it? And so this is the study that sort of merged those other two studies to say, when is this actually worth it when you take into account the harms, the benefits, and your personal risks of each of these outcomes? So let's be even more specific. When they talk about benefits, I assume they're talking about cardiovascular disease. Are they just talking about heart or are they also talking about stroke? They're also talking about stroke. Okay, so we're giving stands to people with the hope of decreasing the chance they're going to get coronary artery disease and cerebrovascular disease. Yes. What are the harms that we're balancing that against? At a basic level, there are the side effects of statins that we know. This team used a pretty broad set of those. The list that I'm looking at includes they looked at the risk of myopathy, renal dysfunction, of hemorrhagic stroke, liver dysfunction, developing type 2 diabetes, developing cancer, developing cataracts, headache and nausea. And they also accounted for the limiting benefit of treatment discontinuation, that not everyone takes it, so not everyone benefits. Okay, so we're going to do this model, and we're going to say over a period of time... And they use a 10-year time frame? Is that right? Yeah, based on the way the guidelines are currently organized. Okay, so they do a 10-year time frame, and they say, if you have this much risk, you would have this many benefits and this much harm. And then they use their previous study to say, well, these harms outweigh those benefits. Yes. Okay, so I got that down. Now, one thing I really liked about this study is they didn't talk about statins as just a class, but they actually used four specific statins. 
Why don't we go over that? Because I think that that really, that helped me a lot. Yeah, so they looked at atorvastatin, rosuvastatin, simvastatin, and pravastatin. And as you say, they treated them as different drugs. And they used the best randomized controlled trials they could find, if I remember, to estimate both the benefits and the harms. And observational studies. And observational studies. Help me with the observational studies. Yeah, so this ends up having a big effect on some of their outcomes, but not all of them. And realistically, the randomized trials that exist are not going to ever really figure out, for example, do statins increase your rate of cancer? They're just not powered for that. But obviously, that's a bad outcome, and it would change who should take them and when. Furthermore, some of the studies looked for these things more fully than others. For example, the well-known side effect of statins causing diabetes was only discovered after drugs were on the market for 20 or 30 years. So clearly, we weren't looking that hard. So to deal with that limitation of data and also the variability of who gets these outcomes, they did include the use of observational studies. And to me, this ends up being a complicated factor in this paper because they found some results that I think are, in fact, not aligned with the randomized evidence, including, for example, pretty high rates of cataracts attributable to statins, headaches, that sort of thing. And so they did look at that for both the statins benefit and their harms. And they also had as one of their harm outcomes, treatment discontinuation. Now, I know that happens a lot. I have quite a few friends who had been placed on statins and stopped them for a variety of reasons. How'd they incorporate treatment discontinuation as a harm? I think the main thing is it minimizes the benefit. Okay trying to figure out the implications of these drugs, it's smaller than it might otherwise look. So table one in the study, if someone wants to uh, look at the study, it's the fourth page of the study, actually the fourth page of the issue, which because it's the very first article in January 1 issue, has the harms outcomes between no statins and statins. And one of the things I noticed was the treatment discontinuation is almost the same whether people know they're on a statin or not. People Which is reassuring, of course. Drugs that have severe symptomatic side effects, you end up seeing higher discontinuation in the treatment arm than, than any placebo-type arm. Right, and we don't see that here. Right. Okay, and then they also look at the 10-year cardiovascular disease risk to see what it is with statins and non-statins at each age group. Yes, and this brings us to the, one of the most interesting things of this paper, I think, which is that for people of the same cardiovascular disease risk, your chance of benefit declines with age, which you wouldn't expect necessarily. And the reason for that is, in fact, what we call competing risk, which is to say some people die of other things or stop taking the drug for other things, and that's more common as you get older. So if you have a 20% chance of having a heart attack in the next 10 years, but you have some other unforeseen terrible illness, you're unlikely to get that benefit. And this, and we'll get back to this, I think, but this ends up getting to one of the, the biggest differences between what they found here and what any previous guideline has really explicitly addressed. I'm so glad you mentioned that because to me, as I was preparing for this conversation, that was one of the most striking things that being in almost the last group here on the right, uh, I'll be turning 70 soon, I would really have to have a very high risk of cardiovascular disease to get any benefit of statins at my age. When I was in my 40s, I would not have had to have as high a risk to get benefit. That almost didn't make sense at first until I thought through the explanation you just gave. This is true. It cuts both ways, of course. One of the striking things about guiding statin use by risk 
is that age of cardiovascular disease increases fairly substantially with age. And so, in fact, one of the things people have found is they started transitioning from treatment based on LDL to treatment based on risk is a sense that you're putting statins in everyone as they're getting older. That age increase just sort of dominates the benefit. And this analysis says, yes, that's true, but not as much as you might otherwise think in large part because of their accounting for competing risk, like you said. When you were 40, your CVD risk was not what it is right now. Right. Happy birthday, by the way. Well, not for about a month and a half, ah, but, okay. but I'm ex pretty excited about it because I feel like it's a big success to get there. The results. So let's look at the overall results first, and, and this is in figure one where they just say statin therapy for primary prevention. And who it tends to help. Maybe you could give a couple of examples from the graph for the audience. So obviously the first thing that this whole paper does is it just comes up with numbers that are a lot more nuanced than any previous guideline has been able to do. And this graph, which takes a minute to get used to because it's thinking in a more complicated way, finds cut points that are substantially higher than we're currently using. Their numbers come up with starting treatment on the order of 12, 15% 10-year risk, or even up to 20, as opposed to the current guidelines, where the ACC AHA says start at 7.5, and the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force says 10%. They also find, as you said, that the appropriate level at which to start goes up with age. So in men, they were finding for 40-year-olds, you might want to start it at a risk level of around 12%. For people who are 70, the appropriate risk level is more like 16%. And for women, it's shifted even further than that, with a 10-year risk for 40-year-olds of around 15%, and by age 70, not starting treatment until 18%. And I know these numbers sound a little hard to get your head around, but it's important because a lot of people are in these ranges that we're talking about. There are a lot of people whose 10-year cardiovascular risk is between 7.5 and, say, 12, 14, 18%. So who would be treated, how much, and what benefit they have would change quite dramatically. So I want to take this discussion in the context of an earlier podcast I did with one of your colleagues, Rod Hayward, in which we looked at a different model for estimating risk. So in making the decision about stands, it seems to me like we need to have a very accurate risk assessment at your age, gender, race, cholesterol level, etc., with an adjustment, which is a subjective adjustment for the factors they can't include, like renal disease, like family history, like exercise, etc. And then we have to rethink, at least this article suggests that we need to rethink how much risk deserves the potential harms of a statin, because the benefits are going to outweigh that. Did that make sense? Yes. So one of the things that they go over is these possible higher levels for statin therapy. Another thing they did is they did the analysis separately for each of those four statins that we started talking out about. How do you interpret that, and where do you stand with recommending a statin? Now that all of these are generic and the pricing is not the huge problem, and let's point out specifically in this article, they did not consider cost. They right. just considered harm and benefit. Yeah. So their findings, they found the cut points for atorvastatin, what used to be Lipitor, as being uh, substantially kinder than rosuvastatin, as in you would start rosuvastatin at higher levels of risk. Simvastatin was higher than that. And pravastatin was both higher but also much more varied and inconsistent. 
Exactly how they reached those numbers is not 100% clear, although there are some hints uh, throughout the paper. And there are a few things that are always worth remembering clinically. First of all, of course, rosuvastatin is the most is the strongest statin. It lowers your LDL by the most. Atorvastatin after that, and simvastatin and pravastatin both lower LDL by less. Simvastatin also has drug interactions with amlodipine that really make you want to be very careful about its side effects. My hunch from what I can read between these is that the simvastatin rates of myalgias probably played a big effect there. And pravastatin, I think part of it is there's simply less data on it and making it a little bit less clear when you should and should not be taking it. With regards to the cost, of course, yeah, these are all now generically available, although the prices in clinical practice varies really quite dramatically. Here in Michigan, you can actually get free atorvastatin at one of the uh, larger grocery store chains, but it's not on the $4 list. It's a whole lot cheaper than it used to be. And you're right, they don't account for that uh, in their analysis, which would have been difficult, especially because this group is not even American. So they have different price issues where they're from. So it looks here, if, we're, if I was just going to pick one statin to have in my armamentarium for treating patients, atorvastatin seems to trump the others. And if there's not a huge cost difference, I can't come up with a reason not to use atorvastatin. I think that's, to be honest, that's not terribly far from my approach right now either, with the one thing to be aware of that, again, we're talking about primary prevention. Rosuvastatin is the most potent, and so if you have a person for whom really dramatic LDL lowering is important or risk reduction is important, things might look a little different. Okay, I'm going to read their conclusion, and then I'm going to let you interpret that and tell me what somebody was asking you how should I change my approach to primary prevention of my patients? What would you be doing? Everybody has to make their own decisions and take a lot of things into consideration. But here's the last paragraph. In conclusion, our results suggest that guidelines should use higher 10-year risk thresholds recommending statins for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease and should consider different recommendations based upon sex, age group, and statin type. Such recommendations would substantially improve selection of persons eligible for statin therapy for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. I think there's a lot of information there. It's a little stronger than anything I would take from it. So let me just go through a few things that aren't really accounted for here. First thing, of course, as you said, is cost. And that's a very personal decision. How much do the finances matter? Another thing that you can't really calculate in a project like this, or at least they weren't able to, is the burden of taking the pill. We all have patients who will say straight out, Doc, I hate taking pills. They come up with excuses to stop. You know they're thinking about it every day. And that sort of factor, those things where what does this do for you psychologically? What do you think about? Those are very clinical decisions and ones that really rely on a doctor knowing a patient and having a good conversation that makes all of these line in the sand cut points a little bit misconceived at their baseline. I think things that I definitely get out of this paper are that in fact the 7.5% cut point is by no means objective or the only one out there. These side effects can add up and they can be important. I think this focus on competing risk and recognizing that the risk threshold that you use might change a little bit as patients get older is a very important one that hasn't really been clearly incorporated. Whether or not we should ignore the 7.5%, I think is probably uh, something that, that requires further discussion. But you know, 7.5% is a low cut point. It treats a lot of people 
who I think probably don't realize how small their clinical benefit is. At a 7.5% cut point, that means that you have 40 people or even more, more like 50 or 60, taking a drug for 10 years before you stop a single heart attack or stroke. That's not a fatal event. That can count an NSTEMI. And so these benefits are not as magical as we act like they are in all patients. And if we recognize the side effects are real, then we have a much more complicated conversation than I think we've been having the last 10 years. And let me just reemphasize, and I I know you're going to agree, this only refers to primary prevention. Once someone has coronary artery disease, it's a totally different discussion. Once someone's had a stroke, it's a totally different conversation. Because that risk is so much higher, you know, the likelihood of benefit is greater, making it that it can more greatly cancel out these side effect rates, yeah. Jeremy, you've done a wonderful job of taking us through this complicated paper. What to you is the biggest take-home message? Have you already given it to us that we just need to think carefully about what the right threshold is for starting treatment for each patient? Yeah, I do. I think in spite of the fact that we're taught to focus on these cut points now, whether it's LDL of 100 or a risk of 7.5%, in fact, your doctorly judgment and your conversations with your patients and knowing them do remain often the most important thing. And one of the things this paper showed was that understanding your patient's other health factors, that they're determining competing risk, still really matter and still really add up on when a drug is appropriate. And the side effects similarly still really matter and how likely your patient is to develop each of them still really matters. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate your help in taking a new look at this very, very common issue in primary care. Thank you. It was great talking to you. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. The first thing that I learned from this article and this discussion is that modeling might help us develop better risk cutoffs for primary prevention. And those risk cutoffs will differ according to age and gender. Picking uh, one value for all ages seems to not make good sense and is likely the wrong strategy. The next thing that I learned is that the data suggests that statins are not equally valuable for primary prevention. It appears that atorvastatin will work the best with the most benefit and the least harm. Finally, when we think about podcast number seven, which discussed estimation of cardiovascular risk and combine the information from that article with information from this article, it's likely that we can decrease very safely the numbers of patients who receive statins. These two articles strongly suggest that guideline developers rethink the strategies necessary to write prescriptions for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease with statins. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope you learned a lot. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. 
The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.